each of us have committed far more than just one crime. And, mm-hmm. and maybe it was in our youth. Maybe it was long past when our brains are fully formed. Maybe um, it happened frequently. Maybe it was infrequent. Maybe it was something petty. Maybe it was something serious. Maybe it was something intentional uh, that was done time and again. Or maybe it was something that was done without thought. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm talking to Emily Baxter of We Are All Criminals. This is a project I've wanted to do literally since the beginning of the podcast. I am really excited that we finally got an opportunity to sit down and talk about the project. So we're going to talk about criminality, who gets to define what is criminal and who is a criminal, and the way that privilege informs and creates those definitions. So here's our conversation. Emily Baxter, you are the founder of We Are All Criminals. Can you tell me what We Are All Criminals does? So We Are All Criminals, or WAC, as I call it, um, it's a project, it's a book, it's an organization, and it's a catalyst for conversation. Using personal stories and photography and insight into our criminal legal system. So, in short, I interview people about crimes they've gotten away with. And these are doctors, lawyers, policymakers, law enforcement officers, business owners. We look at how life would have been different had they been caught, and through that examination of state statute, federal code, and broader social stigma. We look at the privileges that allowed them to not get caught. Um, you know, predominantly it's, it's race and class uh, that have allowed people to be insulated by a thick layer of, of innocence, of presumed innocence. And then we look at how life would be different had they been caught. Um, and the best way to do that is by contrasting those stories with stories of former clients of mine, stories of mentors and, and colleagues and friends and family of mine who have been caught or accused of engaging in the same or similar behavior, uh, but who have now been held underwater by those criminal records, unable to come up for air, um, being constantly defined and confined by their past mistakes or those criminal records. Uh, so it's a conversation about race and class and privilege and punishment and, and mercy and more, and a conversation about how these criminal records perpetuate inequities. Um, but it's broader than that, too. It's about how we see others by, by how we see ourselves. So I thought we could start sort of high level with what is a quote-unquote criminal? Ah, that's a great question, right? And one that this project seeks to challenge. So the prevailing response would be somebody with a criminal record. Uh, But behind that, of course, is the understanding that that person has committed a crime. And that's what, that's what has resulted in the criminal record. And then that's what has um, defined them as being criminal. What this project, We Are All Criminals, seeks to do is to challenge all of that to acknowledge that each one of us, anybody in this country who has 
navigated our legal landscape for any appreciable amount of time has violated the law time and time again. And yet the majority of us are not considered criminal. Uh, And so it challenges that notion of criminality and that determination of criminal. And so what are we saying about someone then when we call them a criminal? It's, is it something more than just that they have a criminal record or, um, is that type of branding serving as any other function? I would say that in in a broad sense, it's certainly dehumanizing. Uh, the idea of being labeled a criminal means that you are defined by a single act or perhaps acts uh, in your history, and that that act or those acts eclipse everything else about you. And so if only some people are being um, defined as a quote-unquote criminal, who who are those folks and how does that, how is this operating? Right. So our criminal legal system doesn't affect everybody to the same degree, right? But it does affect a lot of us, millions of us. Um, In the United States, somewhere between 65 and 100 million people have a criminal record. They've had an interaction with the, the criminal justice system that has resulted in an arrest, a charge, a conviction perhaps, but also an acquittal or a dismissal or uh, a deferred adjudication, but they've had some sort of recorded interaction with the criminal justice system. And in many cases, that recorded interaction is public and it's permanent and it is widely accessible. The criminal justice system certainly doesn't affect everybody to the same degree. Uh, when you, if you attended a, a simple arraignment hearing, for example, in pretty much any courtroom across the United States, what you would see is not a fair cross-section of uh, that of that state, but rather uh, a courtroom filled with people of color, with indigenous people, uh, and with impoverished people. Um, the the people who are are most affected by our criminal justice system are are just that. So they they tend to be black and brown, indigenous and poor, and oftentimes uh, uh, and at the intersection of of that. And the rest of us, like myself, I'm I'm a uh, middle class white woman. Uh, I have not been affected to the same degree as as many people uh, in in communities across the United States who have a higher police presence. That makes sense. Yeah, that does, and and I think fitting this into a conversation around uh, into a broader conversation around um, disparity in the criminal system makes makes sense. And, and most of the time, when I think about um, disparity in the criminal system, a lot of people talk about the system as a form of social control, et cetera. But what you're getting at is also kind of a, a more of a moral concept, like a, an othering or, or something like that. It's not just, it's not just about processing people through the system, but it's calling someone a criminal is saying something about them. Is, is, is that sound right to you? Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. Um, 
a, a fair assessment of what I'm saying, that it's, first I'm saying that it's problematic that our legal system processes millions of people each year, people who tend to be poor and people of color and indigenous people, to a much greater degree than, than affluent people than, and, and than white, affluent white people uh, in particular. Um, what I'm also saying is that affluent white people are committing crimes on a daily basis, and yet they're not seen in, in our courtrooms. They're not seen in our jails. They're not seen in our prisons, and they're not seen on background reports to the same degree that the other populations are. And so there's, there is a question of morality, this idea that one um, has, say, a, a stronger moral character because they are considered clean, because they don't have a criminal record. Um, and they haven't been arrested. They haven't been to jail. They, they haven't gone through that um, maw of the criminal justice system, but what I'm also saying is that that permanent, pervasive, pervasive and publicly accessible record, that shadow of a criminal record that people in positions of authority will use to judge somebody, use to judge their eligibility for employment or education or housing, uh, loans, licensure, ability to adopt or provide foster care, travel, cast a ballot, run for office, sit on a jury, uh, receive a, a life-saving organ transfer. <laughs> These are just a few of the collateral consequences that are out there that people in positions of decision-making authority uh, use those criminal records to determine another person's worthiness of receiving those opportunities. So it is it's squishy on the one hand, this idea of morality and determining who is a criminal, but it has very real-world daily consequences. So as you were thinking about you know, building a movement, why not stop at eliminating some of those collateral consequences, as you said? Why take it the next step and, and have other folks define themselves as criminal? I think in short, because of a series of failures of mine. <laughs> I felt like when I was working as an assistant public defender that my uh, attempts to get people in positions of authority, so perhaps the, the prosecutor or the judge or law enforcement or probation officer, to recognize the humanity of my client, uh, it fell short. And when I left public defense and began working as a lobbyist for a small criminal justice nonprofit and trying to get policymakers, legislators, as well as employers and, and landlords and others, again, who kind of held the key to that, that door that could open a world of opportunities for the people that I was seeking to serve, so individuals who had been justice impacted, individuals with criminal records, Again, the attempts to humanize my clients, to, to get the people in positions of decision-making authority to recognize their worth and not to allow those mistakes or those records, which, by the way, are not always mistakes, right? Sometimes they're wrongful arrests and wrongful convictions, um, but, but those criminal records to define them. And so in... 
that attempt to get the broader system to understand, uh, to recognize, and to want to celebrate and guard my client's humanity, that fell short. Uh, And by the way, I'm not saying that there weren't acquittals when I was a public defender. And I'm not saying that we didn't pass laws when I was a lobbyist. We did those things, and yet it still felt like I was spitting into a hurricane, that there was just, there wasn't a, a necessary paradigm shift to ensure that this wasn't going to happen again. And in a series of conversations, it was this confluence of observations and frustrations and uh, representation that I had done assisting individuals with um, expungement. There was one gentleman in particular where I, I realized, one, the depth of my own <laughs> ignorance and my, um, my, my own privilege um, in even though I had been working as a public defender, even though I had been working as a lobbyist for individuals who were justice impacted, I still held myself separate from them. I didn't see myself in them. And to the people that I was pleading (laughs) um, to, to see my side, the, to those decision-makers, to, to have them, rather than look in some pitiable way to, to my clients, to rather look at themselves and truly scour their own histories to find places where they have violated the law, and then to examine those violations. How is it that you weren't within the crosshairs of the criminal justice system? What privileges have you benefited from in life that allowed you to not get caught, to always be presumed innocent? And then I can, I, I can and I do have those conversations with those um, the people in positions of authority. So again, these judges, prosecutors, law enforcement, policymakers, employers, uh, about people I have represented or people um, who have mentored me, friends and, and relatives and colleagues and more who have been caught or accused or engaging in same or similar behavior. And uh, we together look at how they would have been affected, how their lives would be had they been labeled by their past acts. And so through state statute, federal code, broader social stigma, we examine how their lives would have been rerouted had they been caught, had they been labeled a criminal. And by asking them to look at look more closely at themselves and their own privilege and their own history, that has been far more effective in moving this conversation forward than in asking them to simply recognize my client's humanity. Interesting. So it's the, <clears throat> sounds like it's serving sort of a, a dual purpose, which is to force people to recognize that, oh, I did something you know, a while ago that was illegal and I didn't get caught. And so they sort of examined the privilege that prevented them from getting caught or wrapped up in the system. But it sounds like there's a second step, which is an, um, an empathy or a humanizing step, which is to say, well, if I'm not defined by that one criminal act I did, however, you know, whenever I did it, then 
this person must also have like a life beyond this one thing that I'm judging them on. Does, is that, is, yeah, I absolutely. Although I, <laughs> no, that's good. I would say that I, I ask people to look beyond that one mistake. It, it truly, or, or that one act, uh, whether or not it's a mistake that, that one violation, um, we have, each of us have committed far more than just one crime. And, mm. and maybe it was in our youth. Maybe it was long past when our brains are fully formed. Maybe um, it happened frequently. Maybe it was infrequent. Maybe it was something petty. Maybe it was something serious. Maybe it was something intentional uh, that was done time and again. Or maybe it was something that was done without thought. But when you consider that there starting let's let's just start small right yeah so i was gonna um, say could you give some examples yes i can um you know maybe it's that you've smoked pot or used someone else's prescription medication um taken goods home from the office supply closet i know that that was a personal favorite of mine walked out of the store without paying for something, um, not been completely honest on your taxes as we're entering that season now. Uh, maybe you piggybacked on your neighbor's Wi-Fi or cable or used your ex's Netflix account long past the point of breakup. Um, maybe you have forged your parents' or your partner's signature. You've illegally downloaded music or movies that is most definitely still an offense. Um, maybe you've driven home drunk, uh, bought booze for someone underage, or been the happy recipient of that particular crime. Uh, maybe you threw a punch or extended your employee discount long past its, long, uh, its lawful extension. Those are all crimes, right? And, and oftentimes they're things that we don't even think about. Or maybe it's driving without your driver's license. Maybe it's um, a, a failure to... Uh, have your proof of insurance on you. Maybe it's driving with a busted taillight. People have been incarcerated for less than all of this. People have been jailed for less. And let's be real, people have lost their jobs and their homes and their lives for less. That when someone is viewed as a criminal, they are not seen just as, say, an inconvenience. Uh, upon society, but they are seen as a threat. And that criminality can preclude a background check, right? That perception of criminality. Um, there are some people that are not afforded the same presumption of innocence that I, as a white woman, am afforded, right? For some, in particular, black and brown and indigenous Americans, their, their mere existence uh, can be seen as always already criminal by many. Um, can I ask, so when you, um, you know, enumerate all those, all those potential um, crimes, do people ever say like, yeah, well, that all sounds like, yeah, technically those are crimes, but, you know, nobody ever gets charged with that. Uh, what, you know, what would your response to that be? I, Skylar, I've had so many interviews where that is precisely the conversation where someone may list off, and, and I'm greatly indebted to all of my participants, right? 
Um, but there will be some who, after enumerating a list of seemingly small offenses, will say something along those lines of, um, sure, okay, I did this, but honestly, is anybody ever prosecuted for stuff like this? And I encourage them to walk down to their county courthouse and to sit in on an arraignment calendar. And you will see before you this conveyor belt of McJustice, people coming in and, and pleading to or being charged with the most seemingly minor offenses. And, and these are crimes that will then, these, these are, are labels that will then shadow them for the rest of their lives, precluding all sorts of opportunities. And so of the, the ones that I mentioned, a good chunk of those are felonies, right? From using someone else's prescription medication, um, certainly not being honest on your taxes, potentially depending upon what you're walking out of the store with, um, forgery, driving home drunk can be um, assault that's getting, you know, throwing that punch, extending your employee discount, depending upon how much you're extending it. All of those things can be felonies. That a single pill, prescription pill that is not your own in many jurisdictions can be a felony. And, and so you may think that these are minor offenses because you're contextualizing your behavior within your own very broad and dynamic and diverse history. And you're not allowing that same understanding or that same contextualization or that same latitude for life. Uh, for the people who are caught and labeled or the, or for the people who are accused and labeled of those very same crimes. Now, I'm not suggesting that the entire criminal legal system is uh, comprised solely of those minor offenses, but I, I do contend that a massive chunk is. We're clogging our system with these crimes or what we're calling crimes in, in many uh, senses. And even where people have, say, committed uh, many of the offenses that I just listed, even where there has been harm done or even where there, there should be a debt settled, I don't think that it needs to go through that same conveyor belt, through that same kind of McJustice system that we've set up. There are other opportunities uh, to make people whole and to heal the community. And for many people who haven't been caught, they've been afforded that opportunity to uh, give back what they stole or apologize for, for getting into a fight or access um, a, a treatment if the, the issue is substance abuse or just you know, <laughs> be able to dabble in substances with, without... Um, your life being rerouted. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I wonder how you... So getting in a little bit to this, to these conversations that you have with, with people, because you oh, sort of right. mentioned that dynamic a few times. Um, how do you get into that space, right? Like, how do you bring someone along to get to a place where they are sort of admitting to stuff that they've they've done wrong in the past. Well, it's not the it's not the same with everybody. And in fact, the I think that some of my favorite interviews have been with people who have had a visceral and negative response 
to just the the project title, We Are All Criminals, right? Um, It's intentionally provocative, and it does provoke. (laughs) And some of the the interviews that I've done uh, that I think have been the most challenging for the participant and the most enlightening and rewarding for me have been the conversations I've had with people who are not willing to go there initially, people who put up all kinds of defenses upon hearing the proposition that we are all criminals, uh, people who have had, as I, as I said, that negative and visceral reaction to the existence of the, the project. Um, but as I'm able to walk people through and, and start with, you know, those, those very simple offenses and then move into um, kind of broader and, and oftentimes more serious offenses, it's been, it's been a conversation. It's been a journey uh, with, with that person. And part of the journey is kind of um, disinterring why they had such a, a response to the project itself. It's such a response beyond the fact that, of course, the, the concept of being labeled a criminal in, in our society is negative, right? This is something more than just that. It's more than just a flinch. This is something that can uh, that is burrowed in people's brains and and has inspired them then to contact me either to <laughs> let me know that my project is upside down or that they themselves have uncovered uh, memories that they've suppressed and have come to the realization that they've committed crimes that they had conveniently forgotten. And sometimes, Tyler, those conversations are with the very people that I've been so desperate <laughs> to have conversations with for the last, since I, I started practicing. And by that, I mean with law enforcement, with prosecutors, with policymakers, uh, with employers, with the people who, who are able to uh, open doors for, for my clients and for the people that, that I seek to serve. And, and the people who have been, and these are the very people who have been kind of standing guard by those doors and ensuring that no unsavory types get through, right? So no criminals are, are allowed through. And so having these conversations with people who, who have that, um, you know, that, that preposterous, that, who, who proclaim that there, there couldn't be any way that they would be considered a criminal, uh, who then through kind of a general exercise are able to understand that they're criminals and understand that, and this part is so important, the, begin to understand the depths of their, their privilege and the corresponding obligations to do something about it. Um, that, that's been deeply rewarding. Um, so what is the pushback or what is the, what are the sticky points for people um, as they're, they're sort of going on that journey? I think the first one is just that they are not criminals, right? That they haven't committed any crimes. And then just sitting down with a statute <laughs> book, right? The, uh, a code of conduct with, with um, people, they, they can begin to see 
all of the the laws that they violated. So the first sticking point is that they are, of course, not criminals. The second sticking point is that, yeah, but that doesn't count. And then the third is usually, but that doesn't define me. That's not who I am. And when they can get to that third point, that's the one that I ask them to extend then to others, right? Because this, this project at its base is about um, changing the way we view others by changing the way we view ourselves. So instead of just looking externally for um, the, the flaws or the criminality in others, to turn that upon yourself. And, and when, you can, when, you, when you begin to understand your own criminality, I think you better understand your, the, that your humanity eclipses that. And so then, too, uh, for other people. Does that make sense? Yes. That, no, that makes perfect sense. So I guess that brings me to my next question, which is, what is your desired outcome from all this? Like, when do you walk away from an interview feeling like, wow, that was successful? And what are you trying to achieve um, in pushing this project? Yeah. So... I think my ultimate goal, both with those individual conversations and then in sharing those conversations, sharing that research with others, and typically the the audiences that that I I try to target are people who are in positions of decision-making authority. So again, those criminal justice professionals like judges, prosecutors, uh, law enforcement, but also public defenders, social workers, and more. Um, and then the the people who are soon to be in those positions, possibly people whose minds aren't quite as ossified yet. So students, um, students of law, of policy, um, and and business students. Um, my goal is to not simply gloss over what I ask people to acknowledge from the start, their common criminality, uh, but to truly understand that and the depth of their privilege. Um, and then to want to do something about it. And, and I think that without that fundamental paradigm shift, it's just a, a whack-a-mole, right? <laughs> um, even if we did do something as uh, perhaps a, as small scale as an employer hiring one individual with a criminal record, that's great. That can make a, a an Incredible difference in that individual's life, and perhaps the bottom line of that employer, right? By hiring someone who uh, may be talented and um, and loyal and intelligent and creative and innovative, somebody that they otherwise would not have hired because of that that record, and that would be great for that person and for that employer. Um, but it's not going to change this mess we're in, right? Uh, but so too, like if we ended the war on drugs, my God, that would be fantastic. And, and it's something that needs to happen with, with all great speed, but it alone again, won't fix the mess we're in. Um, because just as one or, or three or eight policies or practices or individuals didn't get us into this mess we're in one or three or eight, isn't going to get us out. And so what I hope in the individual conversations that I have with participants, and then also these broader conversations that I have where I share this research, is that people understand 
that they need to engage in this daily practice of empathy, engage in this daily practice of acknowledging privilege and and extending that same extending that humility, extending um, those opportunities, those possibilities uh, to to others. Yes, definitely, and I think that's probably a good place to end. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, and and thanks for helping to get the word out. Uh, that this is all about reaching as many eyes and ears as possible. And so thank you for making that happen. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to the folks at Poddington Bear for composing our theme music and to the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program at HLS for their ongoing support and help. Um, If you could please remember that rating and reviewing on iTunes or whatever platform you found this on is really helpful to spread the word. And if you have any questions, thoughts, suggestions, ideas, please feel free to email us at wardearpodcast at gmail.com. All right, thanks.